Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Kenna Turcott. And my name is Greg Marshallton. We're talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Steve Penfold is a well-known cultural historian. His previous books have examined the history of Canadians' love affair with the donut, the ways in which Labor Day has been celebrated, and most recently the rise and fall of the Santa Claus Parade in this country. Steve is a member of the History Department at the University of Toronto and has joined me in the studio to talk about his most recent book, A Mile of Make-Believe, A History of the Eaton Santa Claus Parade, which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2016. So Steve, we're closing in on December 25th, so I want to say Merry Christmas and welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, first, Steve, let me say that I was one of those kids who was plunked uh, down every year in front of the TV with my mom to watch the Santa Claus Parade from Toronto. My guilty secret is that while my mother loved every aspect of the parade, I was bored to tears. Uh, I feigned interest because I knew how excited she was about the floats, the costumes, and all of the Christmas glitter. In 1982, when the parade was finally shut down, you were about 16 years of age. As a kid, did you, like me, watch the parade year after year? Not really, actually. It wasn't really on my radar until I was an adult. Um, and it really, uh, I sort of came to experience it first as a just sort of a bad day to go downtown. Um, the Because, you know, the traffic disruptions. Uh, but I feel like I need to write a companion volume about the boredom of the parade. Like, just the whole history of people who got dragged by their parents or parents who got dragged by their kids or people who didn't want to watch it on TV, they'd rather be tobogganing. There's like a whole counter history of the parade that is actually about the people who ignored it. Unfortunately, it's hard to find, you know, archival records about things that were ignored. But So what really motivated you to write this book then, Steve? Well, I mean, there's, I guess, two answers to that. The first is that uh, when we were doing, Craig Heron and I were doing the Labor Day book, um, it was almost like a a journalistic tick to find some child in the crowd of the Labor Day parade who said, where's Santa? Santa didn't come and would be all upset because he, kids thought that parades had Santas. Uh, And so that kind of interested me why the, this parade became so powerful that people expected to see it in other kinds of celebrations. And I also was, I guess, more academically interested in This is a private parade organized by a private company, yet it became kind of public property over the 20th century. And people thought of it as some part of their civic life and their public life and their family life. And so it interested me how private things become public property. Well, on that uh, point, tell us about the connection between the rise of the big department stores in Canada and the United States and the Santa Claus parades uh, that were held in major North American cities through much of the 20th century. Yeah, the department stores really invented the Santa Claus parade, or in the the states they're often called Thanksgiving parades. Uh, And they organized the most important ones, and they used their resources and their skills to organize these parades. Um, In Toronto, uh, Eaton's uh, was the kind of pioneer, uh, started in 1905. And this had really important consequences because these were not civic parades. These were not uh, organized by a lot of different groups who came together to try to represent the city or represent their identity. Uh, These were professional, expert, big money parades. They were very well produced. The art of these parades is far in advance of any other uh, parade at the time. 
Uh, and the, these, these really sort of set the standard. I mean, that's why you see kids expecting Santa in the Labor Day parade, because the parade they remember, what they think a parade should look like, are these very professional expert kind of parades that the department stores organized. And so I call this uh, in, the, in the book uh, the corporate fantastic. It's a blend of meticulous corporate organization and sort of fantastic, uh, wondrous uh, presentation. So, Steve, how did the Eaton's Parade change over time? Well, it started actually in a relatively small scale. The first few after 1905 were kind of Santa. The first one, Santa showed up at Union Station here in Toronto and went around the city in a wagon. It wasn't that developed. Um, and then Santa rode a horse down Young Street another year. They were pretty small scale. Um, but already they had important differences from other kinds of parades. They were a lot less earnest, a lot more whimsical. They, they highlighted uh, the theater uh, of Christmas, the, the professional display of the department store. They highlighted a sort of commercial culture, whereas most parades at the time tended to be about identity. They tended to be much more ordered, much more respectable. Uh, so already it was different, but quite small scale in the early days. By the 1920s uh, and then to the 1960s that I sort of consider the golden age of the Santa Claus Parade, they became much bigger, much more sophisticated, uh, professional uh, in their design, in their art. Uh, they adopt many more characters, uh, clowns, uh, nursery rhyme characters, uh uh, fairy tale characters. Uh, one journalist, and this is where I got the title for the book, called it uh, in the 1950s a mile of make believe, which signals the size. It's literally a mile long. This is an enormous parade uh, for the time. Uh, but also, make believe is really what they're trying to do. They're really trying to emphasize wondrous children's culture. Uh, and that sort of golden period in the middle decades of the 20th century. Uh, are, are when these parades are really at their height, that sort of corporate fantastic. That, that's the fantastic side, the, the, the make-believe. So who were these people from Eaton's who put so much effort into making the parade a true spectacle? And why did they do this? Well, the, the parades are organized by, uh, well, they take in a lot of different uh, parts of the, of the company, uh, but they're organized mainly by the display departments. These are the people who are in charge of... Uh, price tags, uh, mannequins, the way products are displayed and look. They do the, the famous uh, street-level windows. Uh, the Christmas windows used to be a kind of spectacle in itself where people would come down and see the Eaton's Christmas window. And these are the, the, the people who organize the parade are the people who are in charge of that. They also are in charge of Toyland at Christmas and Santa's display inside. And really what they did is they took their expertise in, in displaying commodities and in displaying sort of commercial art and they just put it out on the street. The parade is very much a reflection of the way they see their kind of job. I also find these people very interesting because they're artists in what are relatively conservative corporations. I mean, Eaton's is a relatively conservative company. And here are these artists who have flair. I call the Jack Brocky, who, is, uh, who organized the Toronto Parade for more than three decades, I call him a man in a gray flannel suit with an eye for color. He has like a, this interesting combination of sort of business background and a kind of artistic flair. Um, I'd love to do more, actually, on these display people because they're such an interesting group of artists within a kind of corporate context. Now, the crowds that attended these parades, they were enormous. Uh, who were these folks that came, and what did they get out of the parade? Yeah, I mean, the easy answer uh, is, is everyone came, if you put that in quotation marks. Um, that's certainly what Eaton said, um, and they often highlight 
the diversity of the crowd, you know, uh, in, in Montreal, English and French, you can, and he talks, you know, Brocky would talk about walking down Yonge Street and seeing the entire city, you know, Irish, uh, Chinese, English, whoever. Um, certainly it's a family event. And the easy answer, too, for why people came is kind of joy and wonder. I mean, people love this parade. The usual story you get is of this kind of deep attachment to going year after year, and it gets passed from, from parent to child, from grandparent to, to grandchild. Um, and so this kind of idea of wonder is really what um, shapes people's experience. And it, it fits in with this sort of 20th century development where in a modern world, uh, people begin to endow, particularly middle-class people, begin to endow their children with a sense of wonder and live sort of vicariously through that wonder. And so parents talk about, uh, you know, I live a very rational, ordered, clock-time kind of life, but through my children, I, I can glimpse that sense of wonder and magic uh, and innocence. And so this is, um, although I'm sure these that joy was legitimately felt, it's sort of authorized by these broader cultural developments that are encouraging parents to find wonder in their children. But then the other side of it, too, is this story you told at the beginning, which is a lot of people find this a big hassle. I mean, the, the, the reports about the traffic and the clogged streetcars and the bored people waiting and the hassle is really central to the experience as well. This is hard work for parents to take kids downtown for wait there for two hours. And then just before the parade comes, they, the kid has to go pee. And, uh, you know, it really is a, a managing uh, children. And so it, it is a kind of intensified parental labor um, uh, in some ways. As much as it's joy, it's also a kind of hassle. Now, the Eaton's uh, Santa Claus Parade began to be broadcast on television by the 1950s. So what difference did this make to the parade in terms of what was presented and how Canadians actually experienced the parade? Yeah, I mean, they had to make some changes in the production of it. Um, some, they were very conscious. Again, these are display experts, so they really understand how, how color uh, shapes emotional reactions. And um, so they, they understood that they needed to make some adjustments. They changed colors so they showed up better on TV. Even in the age of black and white, some um, color shows up better in black and white uh, uh, in television. So they had to make some adjustments. They had to make a lot of adjustments in what I call the discipline of the parade. Biggest problems these organizers have, I mean, the parade's filled with children. And children are not rational beings. I can testify to that. <laughs> and uh, the uh, just trying to get them marching in an ordered way was actually quite difficult. But with television, you're into broadcast time, 30 minutes, one hour. And so keeping the parade going on time was really important. And also getting people to smile as they walk by the camera. They literally put up signs that said, smile, you're on camera, because at some point people would kind of lose their focus as they walked down the, the parade route. So they actually would put up signs that said, smile, you're on camera, because uh, it was disciplinary. I think the even bigger uh, changes uh, with television were that uh, Eaton's became less convinced that, that the I guess what we'd call their brand identity was following the parade to the television audience. And so they, before the television age, they actually didn't put the word Eaton's in the parade very much. Uh, they had a sign at the beginning that said to Eaton's Toyland, but it wasn't really like advertising for the company. It was more like public relations, uh, you know, uh, paternalism. We'll, we'll, we'll gift this to the city. Um, but in the TV age, they start putting Eaton's in the, in the parade so that the, the broadcast audience will see it. Um, and over time, too, the other problem, particularly by 1969, when the Toronto Parade is the only one left in the country, 
uh, and begins to be broadcast nationally, they start to have some regional complaints, like the people in Winnipeg say, well, you know, Toronto wouldn't show our parade on Toronto television. And in Quebec, they begin to have many difficulties by the 70s with people complaining that the characters are essentially Anglo fairy tales, often with names that can't be translated, because uh, in the past they had showed the Montreal parade, uh, which had which had showed different characters and had actually bilingual floats. So um, so they, it, it, it's a possibility for Eatons. They get a much bigger audience uh, by going on TV, but it does cause them some difficulties and they need to sort of rethink the way the parade works. So did the Toronto parade resemble Santa Claus parades in the United States? Uh, yes, yes and no. Um, Eatons constantly talked about how distinctive their parade was. And there were some differences. Uh, many of the biggest American parades, like Macy's, uh, Hudson's uh, in Detroit was uh, one of the really important ones, Gimbel's uh, in um, uh, Philadelphia, they, uh, Bambergers in New Jersey and on and on, they had a lot more celebrities in their parade. They often um, built the parade, in fact, around movie celebrities, TV celebrities, and so on. Whereas Eaton stuck to children's characters and they talked that they wanted to, they talked uh, about how they wanted to sort of um, evoke magic and, uh, and really rely on, on the, the magic of childhood more than the kind of celebrity culture. So in that sense, it was a bit different, although there was differences between the American parades as well. And uh, I think underneath that was a similar uh, sort of aesthetic approach to making these parades. These were all uh, people who worked in display departments who understood commercial art. In fact, they talked to each other. The Eaton's people go down to New York to watch the Macy's Parade. The Macy's people come up to, to Toronto to watch the Eaton's Parade. They exchange sort of informal notes between themselves, like thanks for hosting us in Toronto and so on. So there's a kind of network of these Santa Claus parade makers who speak to each other. And so I think similarity is more striking than difference, although there were some differences. So what were the reasons for the demise of the Eaton Santa Claus Parade? Did anything replace it? Yeah, so it, uh, Eaton's pulled out in uh, August of 1982. They very abruptly announced that they weren't going to uh, organize the parade anymore. And there's really two reasons for that. One is straight-up economics. By that point, the parade is extremely expensive. It's about $500,000 to produce the parade. That's $1982, so well over a million dollars in today's in today's money. Uh, and it was in the middle of a recession. They were laying off employees, and um, they were looking to cut kind of frills. Um, Eaton's also was beginning to hit some business difficulties by that point. Um, they were not the dominant company they were in the early 20th century. I mean, Eaton's was, it's hard to describe how powerful Eaton's was in the early 20th century. In like 1930, 7% of Canadian retail is Eaton's. Just one company. I mean, this is a mammoth company in the early 20th century. By the 80s, it's it's a much weaker company. And department stores themselves, more generally, were having a lot of trouble by that time. So one explanation is economic. It's just expensive at a time when Eaton's is in crisis. But by that time, too, it, it, there was a sense that there was a lot more complaining about the parade, particularly around the timing. In the 70s, they move it to Sunday, and there's a lot of complaints, particularly from uh, from Christian people saying... Uh, you know, this is uh, an unholy thing to do. Uh, and there is complaints, too, about uh, the timing in November. On 1981, it's actually held on November 1st, uh, like right after Halloween. And they get letters from people saying, I'm raking my leaves while the Santa Claus parade is on. And it was just seen as a kind of 
excessively commercial move. The idea was you're trying to start the Christmas buying season much earlier. Uh, in fact, they were trying to avoid Remembrance Day, which was kind of um, also being seen as sort of a, a criticism at that point. But they, um, uh, it, was, it's, it was seen as this kind of everything's being commercialized. Right, uh, the Santa Claus parade is too early. Uh, on it's being held on Sunday. Is there nothing that's kind of free of commercialization? And of course, by the 1970s, people were much more aware of the kind of commercialization of childhood, and there was many more critiques. So, when they cancel it, they say, "Well, we're getting rid of this because it's too expensive." But you know, the complaints didn't help. Right. Well, as you know, Steve, I mean, the Champlain Society was established in order to protect and disseminate original documentary evidence. And on behalf of the Champlain Society, I want to thank you for sharing a fascinating photograph from the 1963 parade, which we have now published online in our documentary series entitled Findings. Can you describe this photo to us and its significance to you? Yeah, I love this photo. This is, uh, I came across it in the um, T Toronto Telegram uh, collection at the York University Archives. And it's a photo that uh, a Telegram reporter took uh, of the actual people waiting for the parade. And a more bored group of people you have not seen. In fact, there's a guy in the photo. He's my favorite guy. He's reading a newspaper. And uh, you can just see how bored they are kind of waiting for the parade. Um, and I, I like this because it goes back to the, the story you told about, about your mother, that this way, uh, it sort of reorients your view away from the wonder and the delight of the parade to the sort of experience of the day itself, where much of the day is boredom and hassle. You, you have to commute, you have to fight the crowds, you have to corral your children, and then you have to wait and wait and wait. And it just goes on and on. And so I just like the way it kind of reoriented our view to the sort of hidden, uh, the hidden labor of a big spectacle, uh, particularly parental labor. Um, and I guess that speaks to my sense of, uh, of you know, seeing a parade from the, from the perspective of the bored and annoyed, you know, and every time my kids are happy, uh, I seem to be exhausted. And so that kind of combination between hassle and joy uh, is, is sort of why I found that photo interesting. Steve, you remind me of a time I took my daughter to a Santa Claus parade and Santa Claus went by and she starts crying and she's just looking at me. She's like, Mommy, why didn't Santa wave at me? It was devastating. Yeah. What was supposed to be a wonderful experience turned into... Uh, it's almost like too emotionally intense. Yeah. And in fact, uh, the Institute for Child Study in the 50s actually warns parents uh, against getting their kids too excited about the, uh, about the parade uh, for just that reason. There seemed to be as much crying uh, as kind of joy. Um, it would be really fascinating, actually, to write a whole history of the parade from the margin. You know, like <laughs> yes. from, from the sidewalk. And I do have a chapter in the book that looks at the crowd. And I talk a little bit about this, like people who threw snowballs at, the, at, the, at Santa. And uh, um, I mean, he's sitting there. He can't move. It's not fair to throw snowballs. But uh, people who threw snowballs, people who complained. Uh, there was a guy who showed up every year with a big sign that said, uh, you know, Santa is a big phony. Uh, there was lots of people who, who let's say, read the parade in a different way than the, than the mainstream. And uh, it, would be, it would be quite, I, I tried to talk as much about this as I could, but I didn't want it to take over. But uh, it is true that there's, that that's the, the interesting thing about the parade is there's these multiple emotional experiences, some good, some bad. Uh, and uh, isn't that, that's family. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, our guest today was Steve Penfold. We talked about A Mile of Make-Believe, A History of the Eaton Santa Claus Parade, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. This podcast is made possible by the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University and was produced by Heather Goh, Lily Robbins, and Hugh Backhurst. We look forward to joining you again. 